Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What Bruce described is more typical than we want to believe of what's happening in the name of religion in our country. Much of it in what's happening in our country, politically and socially, is a result of the gospel that we condemned this morning. When you start down the path of teaching that God is not a sovereign God, that His love really accomplishes nothing, that He has great ambitions but little in the way of accomplishments, when you teach that man has a free will of his own and can make his own decision for life and eternity, you end up with such a watered-down concept of reality and of a divine being that anything goes. That's right. And so we live in a time of anything goes. Right. No one cares. There is no fear of the Lord before our nation. They are the exceptions when we find them. We looked at the fact that John 3.16 is set forth as almost a magical formula and how it's abused, and men will say that it's all the gospel they need. We looked at the fact that John wrote for a very specific purpose in 1 John chapter 5, that he wrote to believers that they might know that they have eternal life and that they might believe. Right. That's important that the New Testament, especially John's writings, and he, don't, he doesn't differ from the other writers, was written to believers. Amen. Not to the unsaved that they might become saved, but to believers who were already saved by the grace of God, that they might know that they had eternal life and that they might believe. And of course that believing includes more than just bare faith. We looked at the fact that John itself, the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John, teaches that man in his condition before salvation is without hope. He's dead. He cannot see. He cannot comprehend light. And so if we're going to interpret a verse about salvation in the Gospel of John, we better look at all that John has to say about the condition of man before he's saved. And he needs life. He doesn't need the offer of anything. He needs someone to give him life and to resurrect him. And that's why it's called a resurrection in John chapter 5 and verse 25. Then we looked at the fact that those that receive that life from God and and who are resurrected by Jesus Christ were given to the Son of God by His Father. So we saw the doctrine of election taught even in the Gospel of John. Then we saw that in regeneration, which is the giving of life to dead sinners, God is sovereign and man is passive. And that's taught in the Gospel of John. And I'm not referring to those places because I said it this morning. And we need, we want to move on and we want to be relatively brief this evening. We could have proven that many times over from Paul's writings, but we didn't need to. We could go to John's writings where they often go to bring forth John 3.16, John 1.29, John 1.12, 3.36, and then 1 John 2.2, 2, and other places, to show that salvation is nothing but an offer that God makes to sinners. And we've seen from John himself that that is not the case. Amen. That if God does not save by His own sovereign power, men will not be saved, Amen. and they couldn't fulfill any conditions if He even ask them to until they already have eternal life. But now I want to show you from John, and let's turn to the first chapter, that when a man does believe, remember our text that we're considering tonight is John 3.16, and we want to reclaim that as our own, because that's our verse. Because we believe it, we read it, in the light of the rest of Scripture, and in light of what the rest of the Gospel of John teaches. But I want to show you from John that if a man believes, he already 
is in possession of eternal life. God has already regenerated him, and the belief is but an evidence of what God has already done for him. Therefore, you can't set forth belief as a condition, and whenever you see the words, whosoever believeth, well, you understand those without it, you should, without even thinking. Those are those that God has regenerated that believe, because no one else ever would. They wouldn't comprehend it, they can't see it, they can't hear it, you can't even, they can't even understand his speech. Yea, John 5.25, they're dead. John 1.12, it says, As many as received him, past tense, to them gave he power, past tense, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe, present tense, on his name, which were born. Past tense. Right. Which were born, they believe. You show me a man that believes in the present tense, and I'll show you a man that was born in the, prior to that in the past tense. Right. And he was born of God. Amen. He wasn't born of blood, of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man. It's that simple. John 1, 12 and 13, believing on Jesus Christ is the evidence that you have already, prior to that, been born again. Amen. They use the 12th verse by itself because the 13th verse doesn't fit their theology. But the 12th verse doesn't end with a period. It's a continued statement with a dependent explanation in verse 13 as to how they became the sons of God. Right. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, we're looking at the fact that if a man believes... He's already in possession of eternal life. In verse 3 we read, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we meet someone, or when we remember in our own experience, the time that we saw in the Scriptures a presentation of Jesus Christ, and not only did we see Him, we saw our need of Him, we saw His glory, and we had a desire to obey Him, and to follow Him and to believe on Him, that's proof that we had to be born again. Because except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3. You shouldn't let someone throw those words at you as if they're stating a condition of something you should do. It's stating a fact that unless you are born again, you are unable. He cannot see. You are unable to even see, to recognize that Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is in the world until you are born again. When you see the truth about Jesus Christ and you obey it, it's proof that you were already born again prior to that. Now look at this text, John chapter 5 and verse 24. John 5, 24. Verily, verily. Don't forget that most of these, many of these, verses we've looked at began with that warning statement that something of a great truth is about to be stated. Verily, truthfully, truthfully, I say unto thee. Here it's I say unto you in verse 24. He that heareth my word, present tense, and believeth on him that sent me, present tense, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That is passed is a perfect tense. And there's a long explanation that I could go through that wouldn't help any of you, because I'm going to show you from the Bible how to look at verb tenses. It's a special Greek tense called the aorist tense, which our translators sometimes did past, sometimes did present, sometimes did perfect. But a perfect tense verb means it's something done in the past that is still true in the present. When we read, but is past, that's something that was done in the past, but it's still true now, is past. It is an action done in the past, still present now. But it was he that believeth, he that heareth, present tense, is past. The passing from death into life took place before he did the hearing and before he did the believing. We would say that today has been past. That is the perfect. Was past would be the past. Has been past is the perfect tense. But come over here to 1 John chapter 5. 
chapter 4, and let me show you how that you don't need to know very much about verb tenses except to compare Scripture with Scripture and read the simple English language. This point that we're looking at is when we consider the Gospel of John and the statements about believing, whosoever believeth, we want to look at what the Bible has to say about the relationship of eternal life to that. Does it come first or does it come after it? Do you believe in order to obtain eternal life? Or are you given eternal life by the voice of the Son of God and then you believe? Look at 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God. There we have everyone that loveth, present tense, is born, perfect tense, of God. Turn to 3.14. 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now does that explain for you those verb tenses that you might not want to bother yourself with in 4.7. If 4.7 says, He that loveth is born, what does that mean? I've already told you what it means grammatically. It means that the birth took place first and you're loving because you're born again. But isn't that exactly what 3.14 tells us? It explains that for us. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Amen. Jesus Christ, by His almighty voice, called us into life. And because of that, we love the brethren. If Jesus Christ had not given us eternal life, we would be like Paul in Titus chapter 3, hateful and hating one another. The great difference was the washing of regeneration of Titus 3, 5. And it occurs before we ever love the brethren. We don't love the brethren in order to be born again. We love the brethren because we are born again. And from that we can know that we have passed from death into life. They reverse all of that. Of course they wouldn't mess with this text. To say that you've got to love the brethren in order to be born again, they just want to go to the believe verses, which are convenient to their theology. You have to believe in order to be born again. Then you're supposed to love the brethren. But if it applies to belief, it applies also to loving, because the Bible uses them the same way. They're both evidences of eternal life. Look at 5 1. 1 John 5 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Can any man ever believe that without already being born again? We know that. Except a man be born again, he cannot see. If he can't see, how will he ever believe that Jesus is the Christ? But you show me, whosoever believeth. Don't forget these words, they're John's words. Right. You know, even though the Holy Spirit inspired our Bible, every single word of it, he used the writers. And you'll notice words like this in John's writings. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Not shall be, not could be, but is. And they were born in the past, and their believing on Jesus Christ is the evidence of that gift. Same type of a verb construction. The believeth is in the present tense, and is born is in the perfect. Come over to 2.29. Let's look at another one that matches up with 1 John 5.1. 1 John 2.29. Most of you, many of you, do not appreciate what you're hearing right now. You You have not gone out and ever had a discussion with someone who's trained in theology about our doctrine. Our doctrine is the opposite of theirs. They hold out conditions for a man in the flesh to perform so that he can become a man in the spirit. We maintain that Jesus Christ does that by his almighty power in translating us from the flesh into the spirit, and then we are able to believe and obey. Very different. They have man performing the conditions for his recreation in Christ Jesus, And we have Jesus Christ doing that for us so that we then keep those things as evidence. It's a huge difference. But when we look at the Bible, it is so simple. 1 John 2.29. 
If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. Amen. They don't like a verse like this either. It says, he that doeth, present tense righteousness, is born of him. Now what comes first? The doing of righteousness or the being born of him? Being born of him. Absolutely, you must be born again before you can ever do righteousness. Amen. Same construction, present tense, he that doeth is born, perfect tense. An action completed before, but it's still present in the, in the, it's still true in the present. They wouldn't dare look at that text any other way. Otherwise, you have to be doing righteousness in order to be born again. Right. And they don't even teach that, but the belief verses are the ones they run to, and I'm showing you what the Bible actually says. Remember John 5, 24, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, not shall get, hath. That is to be in possession of it. You show me a man that's hearing and believing, he is in possession of eternal life. And yet there is a future tense of his salvation. He shall not come into condemnation in that great day because he is one of God's elect. But is past, he already has been passed from death unto life. Amen. God saves us, then we're able to hear and believe. That is the gospel of the New Testament. Amen. So that when someone does believe, whosoever does believe, we know that they're God's children and we teach them that that salvation is theirs, and they can have a confident and a sure hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at 1 John 4.15. There's just, listen. If, if they would ever read their Bibles. 1 John 4.15. But if you believe that you don't need anything else but John 3.16, you wouldn't run into these, would you? Right. If you believe the other 31,000 verses aren't very important... You wouldn't find this. Look at this one. 1 John 4.15. Now think back to your verb tenses again. 1 John 4.15. Whosoever shall confess. What tense is that? Future. Future. That Jesus is the Son of God. God dwelleth in him. And he in God. What tense is God dwelleth in him? Present. Present. Isn't that a beautiful text? What's the order there? God dwells in a person, then they confess. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Is this simple? Amen. Whosoever shall confess. You say, are verb tenses really that important? Yeah. Without verb tenses, you don't make a bit of sense in the right. English language. You've got to put a priority and an order to events taking place in a sentence. Whosoever shall confess, God dwelleth in him now. Because God has to dwell in a man first before he shall ever confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Right. So, isn't it easy now to run into a verse like John 6.47 that says, He that believeth hath everlasting life. He's in possession of life. Right. Because from all these verses we see that the life was given to him before he could ever hear and believe. Now a verse that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, 1 John 5.4 tells us that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So what is born of God, according to this verse? Our faith. Isn't that beautiful? Our faith is born of God. We don't exercise our faith in order to be born of God. Because if we were to exercise our faith before we're born of God, what kind of faith would it be? It would be no faith at all. What kind of faith does the flesh have? Why did God give eternal life? Chapter 5 and verse 20 will tell you, right where you're at, 1 John 5, 20. Why did God give eternal life? Because he felt sorry for the human race, and so he held out a huge bank account, and you're to write the check of faith and draw your eternal life on the bank account of heaven. That's one of their little stories. Here's why God gives eternal life. 1 John 5, 20, we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Amen. Why? That we might know him that is true. If God had not given eternal life, how many would know him? Nobody. None. To what creatures would he manifest his magnificent grace and glory? 
unless he gave us eternal life, that we might know him that is true, him that is truly gracious. Amen. But brethren, it's not enough just to believe. Did you already pick that up from a couple of those verses we were looking at? What's the, what's the evidence of eternal life? Loving the brethren. What's the evidence of eternal life? Doing righteousness. In John chapter 8, some of the Jews that were there, it says they believed on him, but they didn't truly believe. And you can go there and Jesus will turn to them because Jesus knows the hearts of all men. And he said, if ye continue in my word, then shall ye be my disciples indeed. But they were not interested in continuing in his word. And a few verses later, he's telling them, you're of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. You can read it in John chapter 8. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. What's the evidence of eternal life? It's hearing, seeing, believing, obeying, and continuing in the word that Christ gives us to do. What about that word world in John chapter 3 and verse 16 and many other places in the Gospel of John? The word world, chosen by John as one of his favorite words, you won't find it used nearly as many times in the other Gospels, right. only a couple. It's a very loose word. And it, it's a word that means, even in an English dictionary, the inhabitants of the earth or a section of them. Right. And we see John using it in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it means the wicked section of the human race. Sometimes it's the elect section of the human race. Sometimes it's the whole human race. Sometimes it's the earthly sphere of humanity, our world, as we would commonly use it today. He uses it with a wide latitude. So how do we define that word? By looking at its context. Always going to its context. Could John 3.16 even conceivably be Every human being without exception. No. No. Because it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. But we've already seen this morning, numerous places in John, that He gave His Son for the elect. For the sheep. For those that He had given His Son to redeem. Which limits that world right there. John chapter 12 and 19, the Pharisees said the whole world has gone after Him. Did you go after him? No. I'm using the past tense back then. Did you go after him? Did the Chinese go after him? Nope. Did those inhabiting Europe at that time go after him? Nope. Did even 1% of the Jewish population go after him? Nope. No. But the Pharisees could say the whole world's gone after him. Look at chapter 14, John 14 and verse 17. John 14 and verse 17. If the word world always means every human being without exception from Adam till the end of time, we're in deep trouble interpreting some verses like this one. Even the spirit of truth, Jesus told his disciples, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now, if the world is every single human being from Adam to the end of time, it would just not make sense in this verse because this verse says that the world cannot receive the Spirit, and yet we know that many did. And then it says that in the very verse that the world cannot know Him or receive Him because it seeth Him not, but ye know Him. So in the very verse we are told that the disciples were not part of the world in the way that it's used here. There's a great section of humanity that will never receive the Spirit because they cannot see Him or know Him. But ye, and there's the distinction drawn, a great section of humanity, but the election will see it and will know Him and will obtain it. In that verse, it's the non-elect, the blinded world. Look at chapter 15, verse 19. According to their interpretation of John 3.16, Jesus Christ died for the world. The whole world. That means, so easy they say, that means every single single member of the human race from Adam to the end of time. Well, John 15.19 says, If ye were of the world, 
the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. If Jesus died for every single member of the human race from Adam till the end of time because of the use of the word world, then all the disciples are definitely lost because they were not of the world. We could go on and on and on. The word world. And I, we could go on and on. I want someone to show me just one time in the Bible where the word world means every single descendant of Adam till the end of time. One time out of the 207 uses. Once. It never means that. Right. It's always meaning a section of the human race under consideration. I mean, you all know the familiar, the common ones, like in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, there went a decree out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should, that all the world should be taxed. Was that even all the world? Are you kidding? Did you pay? Did the, did those inhabitants of Europe of the 15th century pay? Did the inhabitants of China of the 4th century pay? Did Daniel pay? Did Enoch pay? That great big world of theirs just gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until it means a very, 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 very small section of the human race under consideration when you mention the words Caesar, Augustus, and taxes, the Roman world. Right. It's hard, though, when you've heard John 3.16 taught for many years, You've read it for many years. You may have taught it for many years. And the word world just always means every single person. Which there isn't, a, there isn't a, an occurrence of the word world that way in the Bible. But if you've believed that, it's very hard to divorce yourself from that thought. But brethren, we'd have to do it all the time, don't we? And that's to put down false teaching and look at the true sense of a verse. Amen. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Am I holding up the right thing when I quote that verse? Uh-huh. But if you had been trained or raised hearing that over and over as a description of the Bible, it's very difficult. When you go into 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine and read about the baptism for the dead, does it take a little bit of mental fortitude and mental discipline to come out of that verse with a proper sense? Galatians 5, 4 says, ye are fallen from grace. There's lots of churches that like Galatians 5, 4 because of that. Are you able to go in there and put a sense on those words? We have to do it all the time. We read in the law of God distinctly and we give the sense. In 1 Corinthians 9, 22, Paul said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. If we're not going to put a sense on that verse, then tonight he would have stood up and said that he was glad to hear what Bruce was saying, that there were other men like him in the world, that they that were being made all things to all men, that they might by all means save some. And we could go right on down that list. That's why when anybody says to me, the word all means all, I say I deny the doctrine that Paul was a practicing homosexual. They say, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, if all means all, then Paul was made all things to all men that he might by all means save some. We put a sense on words because the Lord expects us to. Amen. John chapter 3. Who is Jesus Christ speaking to in the first 21 verses of John chapter 3? Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus by night. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3, Nicodemus says, how can an old man get back into his mother's womb? Jesus straightens him out and tells him it's a baptism by the spirit. It's a new birth by the spirit. Don't you get a baptism in verse 5. It is a, it is a regeneration. It is being born again by the spirit in verse 5. And then he says in 7, marvel not. Marvel not. I know you've never heard this before. Jesus telling Nicodemus, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Then he explains how a man is born again with a sovereign operation of the Spirit of God as the wind blows. Nicodemus says in verse 9, How can these things be? 
And brethren, if you're wise, you're going to ask that. How can these things be? Do you realize the doctrine of salvation we hold here is very, very unique? And we hold it because we believe the Bible. How can these things be? There was a man who knew the Bible, who knew the Scriptures, along with all the Pharisees, the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion. He did not understand any of these things. Jesus said in verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? That's why I said what I did this morning. My money is on Mary and Martha, rather than a man who's been to seminary. Art thou a master, and knowest not these things? Now watch Jesus Christ lay some heavier things on him. Verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know. What I and my disciples say, we know what we're saying, and testify that we have that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Because here's this man who needs to be instructed greatly, and if a man's not born again, he's not going to understand spiritual things right. or heavenly things. And no man, verse 13, hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Amen. Now think about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. He, just, he just sprung the mystery of godliness on Nicodemus. Right. What's the mystery of godliness? God is manifest in the flesh. Look at that 13th verse. No man hath ascended up to heaven. But he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now, the Son of Man was sitting there speaking to Nicodemus on earth. And he said that he was in, present tense, heaven. But you'll find that all other Bible translations except the King James Version changes that verb tense. He was in heaven. But I want to tell you that he was in, he was in heaven at that very time. Amen. While he was on earth speaking to Nicodemus, he was in both places at once because he was God. Amen. And he laid that little jewel on Nicodemus. Yep. Then he laid a few more on him. What, notice what he just called himself in verse 13. The Son of Man. That is the Messiah. The Christ. Right. And he lays on Nicodemus this fact. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This Son of Man that you Jews have been looking for, that the Old Testament prophesies about, that Son of Man is coming, but He's going to be lifted up. Rather than riding a white horse and leading the armies of Israel to throw off the yoke of Rome, He's going to be lifted up. And there's a reason for that being lifted up. It's in verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And there is no condition in verses 14 and 15. It is a statement of the fact of the reason why the Son of Man would be lifted up to secure eternal life for believers, because that's the whole purpose of John's writing, to show believers that they have eternal life that was secured for them by Jesus Christ. As we looked at for an hour this morning, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no man shall pluck them out of my hand. His point to Nicodemus is, you Jews are looking for a certain thing. You've got an idea of what the Messiah should look like. But I'm going to lay something on you, and this is the kingdom of God. The Son of Man coming to be lifted up. Did you know the disciples couldn't even grasp that until the Lord gave them understanding of it at His crucifixion? When Jesus told Peter he was going to Jerusalem to be offered up, what did Peter say? Far be it from thee, Lord. Peter wasn't going to let that happen. Peter didn't want that to happen. But that's why the Son of Man came into the world. And he's, he's he's laying that out to Nicodemus, this master of Israel. This is a, this is a very important point. And there's no condition in there. What he's talking about is the being lifted up on the pole, on a cross, just like the brazen serpent was lifted up in numbers when the people were, be, were dying, had died from fiery serpents. Four, the Son of Man must be lifted up in order to secure eternal life 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, this tells us why God gave His Son. And it limits the first part of the statement that God loved. That little adverb, so, in there is not saying God loved the world so very, very much. It means God loved in this manner that He gave His Son. And what world did He love? What world did He give to the Son to die for? We already saw it this morning. His elect. His sheep. Those that the Father hath given Him. And He's just laying out this truth on Nicodemus. This Son of Man that the Jews are looking for, naturally, is not the Son of Man that's from heaven. The one that's from heaven is going to get lifted up. And He's going to get lifted up to secure eternal life for believers. For... And the reason for this great transaction of the Son of Man is that God loved His elect and therefore sent His Son to guarantee the salvation of all those that believe on Him. And the language is ordered this way by the the providence of God because the purpose of the book is to show those that believe that they have eternal life and for them to believe. Amen. Whosoever believeth in Him, whosoever who would believe in Him, If a man would ever believe in Jesus Christ, it must be because he saw Jesus Christ with understanding and heard Jesus Christ with understanding and therefore is already born again and in possession of eternal life. Because how many verses do we need to turn to? We've already been there. He that heareth and believeth is passed from death unto life. But, brethren, there is no salvation for even God's elect without Jesus Christ coming into this world to be put up and to be lifted up as that brazen serpent was, and to lay down his life for his sheep. No, No matter how much God loved them, no matter his purpose in the decree of election, unless Jesus Christ died, there was no salvation for them. And therefore we have these verses. The securing of eternal life, the purchase of eternal redemption, is by the Lord Jesus Christ, out of the divine plan of God the Father in His love for the world of His elect. And it's a statement of fact that Jesus Christ would secure that eternal life for any that believe. And the believing is not a condition because we've already seen it numerous places. He's pointing out what the Son of Man would do by being lifted up. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What a verse. We've got three worlds in John 3.17. For God sent not his Son into the world, the earthly sphere of human inhabitants, where God sent his Son, Jesus Christ. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. What world did Jesus Christ come not to condemn? The world of the non-elect. He didn't need to condemn them. Why didn't he need to condemn them? They're condemned already, which we're going to get to if we just read ahead. But that's, this, that's a world there. But why did God send His Son into the world? That the world through Him might be saved. The last part of verse 17 is a different world. It's the world of the elect. Right. You say, are you trying to tell me that in John 3.17 there's three worlds? Yep. Yes. Amen. You say, that, that word world's off loose. Yes. <laughs> and therefore, you better look at your context and determine what's being said. Amen. That's how we put a sense on words. Why would he tell Nicodemus that God so loved the world and then have to explain in verse 17 that he didn't send his son to condemn that world if it's the same world? If it's a different world from John 3.16 or, the, or it's, that doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus didn't come to condemn the non-elect world. He came to save and redeem the elect world. He didn't have to condemn the non-elect world. They were already condemned, as verse 18 will tell us. He that believeth on him is not condemned. It doesn't say he that believeth shall not be condemned, although that's true. This man is delivered from the sentence of condemnation already. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What is that that last part of the sentence there for? 
Because he hath not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God? Is that the basis for his condemnation? No. The verse just said he was condemned already. How was he condemned already? In Adam. All you got to do is go to Romans chapter 5, which we didn't want to do for the sake of our study today, and see that men are already condemned in Adam. Then they're already condemned by their own sins. But because he hasn't believed, he has no evidence of being freed from that sentence of condemnation. Because it is an evidence, he that believeth is not condemned. He was released prior to his believing from the sentence of condemnation by Jesus Christ having saved him. You say, why did God write verses like John three fourteen through 21 when he knew that so many would take them and teach a universal redemption, free will, a God that is not sovereign, and all the other heresies that come out of this passage. Why did he do it? So the men who wanted to believe in a God like that could find an excuse to do so. Right. Let me ask you this. Why do I have verses like this in the Bible that the church of Christ loves so much? And see, so just think about these. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Uh-huh. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Those are three verses. What do those sound like to you? It sounds like we ought to change the name of this church to the Greenville Church of Christ. Why are those verses there in the Bible? Because there'd be men that would come along that would want to believe in baptismal regeneration, and the Lord gives them the rope that they can go up into a tree, tie it to a limb, tie the other end around their necks, and jump off because they don't want to humble themselves to the Word of God and read everything that the Bible has to say, applying His rule of Bible study and always exalting Jesus Christ to be the Savior alone. Amen. And so when men don't want to do that, there is plenty of rope in the Bible to hang you on any subject you want to pick. Why do the Mormons have the baptism for the dead? Because of 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Why did God put it there when he knew that a whole denomination would pick one verse of the Bible to build an ordinance of their own? And so it is in John chapter 3. But brethren, these are our verses. These are our verses declaring that the Son of Man came into this world not to throw off the Roman yoke off the Jews, but to be lifted up from the earth like the brass serpent was to secure eternal life for believers. And the whole purpose it was written was not to get people to believe in order to be born again. It was written to those that already believed because they were born again so that they could know that they have eternal life. If God loved the human race without exception so very, very, very much, why couldn't He save very many of them? How do babies get to heaven without believing? How did people get saved in the Old Testament when they didn't know about Jesus Christ? Will those in hell sing just as loud about His great love? If God so, so loved very, very, very much every descendant of Adam without exception, don't all those in hell have a right to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain as much as those in heaven? You say you're being too logical. Listen, if the Word of God isn't logical, we've got problems. Amen. Logic is nothing but 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's how we all think, and God gave us those minds to think that way. If God loved the human race without exception so very, very, very much, why will He profess that He never knew most men in any affectionate way? Why has He kept the gospel from most men in the history of the world if He sent His Son to save them all? What good is His love with most men going to hell? What made the difference between those that are saved and those that are lost? And by world, we mean every human being from Adam to the end of time. Are those in hell separated from his love? Because he said nothing can separate from his love. Right. Does he chasten the whole human race? Or does he only chasten those that are sons Amen. and rejects those that are bastards? How are we supposed to love our wives the way that God loves the world or that Christ loved the church? Are we supposed to love all women equally, including our wives? 
Or is it a particular love? Amen. Just as Jesus Christ had for his church. Evil men know how to love securely. When evil men love, they love better than the God that's presented in the pulpits of the God from John 3.16 as it's popularly misused and abused. Because if a man, and even an evil man, loves a woman enough, he will not let that woman get away. He will save her and he will win her. And if God, the, the God of the universe that created the heavens and the earth, set his love and gave his son for men, but he could not save them? What kind of a doctrine is that? It's blasphemous. I want to ask this. If God loved the human race without exception so very, very, very much, why in the book of Acts, when I read about all the evangelism of the New Testament church under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, is there not one occurrence of the 13 forms of the English verb love? One time in the whole book, not once. Not once those apostles ever go out and offer this love of John 3.16 that is stuck on placards in the end zones of NFL stadiums. Go read the book of Acts. Not one time of the 13 forms. Because when there's evangelism being done, I'm going to tell you what you preach. You preach hellfire. Amen. And your reason of righteousness, judgment, and te- righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Right. And anyone that God has given new life to, do you know what they'll do with that? They will say to you, you will not have to say, you will not have to say to them, I want you to get up out of your seats and come down by the hundreds. They will say to you by the hundreds, what must we do? Amen. Isn't that different? Right. That's a Cornelius. And that's Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What did Peter just told them? Jesus of Nazareth that you just crucified is seated at God's right hand and God has appointed him Lord and Christ. When they want to believe and be baptized, then what do you get to tell them? 1 John 5.13, These things are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Brethren, I want to tell you about some love before we come to the Lord's Supper tonight. I want to tell you about love. I want to tell you about the love of your Father in Heaven that is so different from their abuse of John 3.16. I want to tell you that God loves you and He saves you because He loves you. It's a love that works. It's a love that accomplishes. God loves you and He saves you. And I want to tell you something else about how God loves you, He never quits. I want to tell you that the God that we worship, who sent His Son and gave Him for our sins, keeps His promises. He wins His object. The God of heaven doesn't send His love on an object To lose that object, he'd be the most frustrated being in the whole universe because his love is infinite, but his infinite love is thwarted by a very finite creature? Oh no, brethren. I want to tell you about an everlasting love formed in the mind of God himself before the worlds began that will most definitely keep all of its promises and he promised eternal life to you before the world began. He will win his object. And He will show you that love. And He will get His arms around you. And you will have eternal life. World without end. Amen. 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 But I want to tell you more about that love of that God. It never changes. You can't tell me that God so loved every single one and every single member of the human race. And then once you get to hell, He doesn't love you anymore. I want to tell you it never changes. He will love you forever. And His love will keep you forever. And His love is so great it guarantees every good thing that you need. Do you know what He said? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not, with Him, freely give us all things? If God gave His Son for anyone, guess what that guarantees? That you're going to get everything else. Because if God gave the greatest thing He has to give, then everything else that comes along behind is certainly guaranteed. Romans 8.32 That's how much God loves you. God loves you so much that He'll do whatever is necessary to save you. 
And he does, brethren. Amen. He does whatever is necessary. He comes into your life at some point between conception and death, and Jesus Christ cries in a loud voice, like he did in John chapter 11 to Lazarus, Come forth! Amen. And I want to tell you what you do. Come you come forth. Right. Amen. And with loving kindness, he's drawn you, and you are his, and he will never let you go, and Amen. no man shall ever pluck you out of his hand, and his father is greater than he is, and you will not be plucked of the father's hand either. Amen. You are wrapped up in the love of God, safe and secure forever and ever. The love they offer and throw out there is blasphemous sacrilege against the God of heaven. It is promiscuous love of a whore. That's right. The love of God is very particular and special and efficacious and efficient and accomplishes its purpose and keeps everyone that he loves. Amen. And brethren, I want to tell you that the love of God is great enough to overcome your rebellion. Amen. Their God doesn't love enough to overcome a stubborn woman. But I want to tell you, do you understand that, what I'm saying? They say that God is loved so, so very, very, very much. Every human being without exception from Adam to the end of time. But guess what? Because they're a little stubborn, it thwarts his whole design and his love. But I want to tell you something about the God that we serve. He loves you so much that your rebellion cannot stop him. Right. He goes right through it with his love. And with cords of kindness, he draws us. Amen. Amen. Do you believe on Jesus Christ? Amen. You've been passed from death unto life. And you shall not come into condemnation, but shall live forever. Amen. I exhort you to believe on him more. Amen. And love him more. Amen. We get so enraptured to be loved by another human being. But I want to tell you something. The God of heaven set his affection on you before you were ever conceived or your great-grandparents were conceived or Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. He knew you so well, he already inscribed your name in the book of life. And he, he said, I love, I love you so much. I will send my son to die for you and I will never, ever let you go. Women love to hear a man say that. And when a man says that, he's nothing but the best of men. A liar. When God says it, it is absolutely certain and sure, world without end, that he will never let us go. We can never be plucked out of his hand. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. And brethren, it is love. God loves his elect. Amen. And he will secure their salvation through his Lord Jesus Christ, and we will bask in the warmth and the security and the affection of that love forever and ever and ever. He's a glorious Savior worthy of your total affection, your devotion, your service, and your praise. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Amen.